we just want it to be as impulsive as possible, Sarah. And that gives not only, it's not fake, it's not fake impulsive, it's real impulsive, but it means like, if it's awkward, then it's awkward anyway. So maybe we all know who you are. And I was amazed I was able to get your business model. But Sarah, maybe introduce yourself for the audience in Sri Lanka and Finland. And I'm sure there's another country now. Yeah, I'm the CEO and co-founder of Winnie. So Winnie is a childcare marketplace. We really specialize in helping parents find daycare and preschool, so group licensed care. We operate across the United States and have over 250,000 now daycares and preschools on Winnie. So parents can come to Winnie and search and filter by all their unique childcare needs and hopefully yeah. find providers that are relevant to them. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh God, I have a bit of echo, but hopefully it's okay. It's first guest. Yeah, the, this is not only the first guest, but apparently Kevin Sequence, not only you, important person, but also other important people <laughs> subsequent to you. And now we actually have to be entertaining. And so the pressure is on, Sarah, is what I'm trying to say to you. <laughs> yeah, hopefully I won't blow it for your other guests and you'll decide yeah. not to have guests anymore. I want to ask you a couple of things. So just to get a conversation rolling a little bit. First of all, I, from a context of venture, for me, for over the past, probably history of my company, companies that I've run in venture, it's always been every 18 months. What we see on the news from you is a cycle of one fundraising and then three or four years of operational. It sounds really hard. And I want to get your perspective on that. And I don't know, your way that you operate, maybe just in general. Yeah, I think this is actually like the time for women founders and other underrepresented founders who yes, have never gotten much of the venture capital. So women founders receive 2% of the venture capital and then it goes down yeah. from there if you're a woman of color who I don't even think are at the 1% mark. And so we've been forced always, like not by choice, but just by necessity to not rely on that next round of funding because it probably won't be there. We're hit by the double whammy of not just being two women founding this company, but also operating in a space that is historically underlooked and underfunded and seen as like a women's space, which childcare shouldn't be, but it's- It's a ginormous open. space, by the right. way. Massive, a massive market. <laughs> I have two kids. I realize how important it is. Yes. We- Right now is like business as usual for us. VCs are out there saying you can't fundraise maybe for all of 2023. And we're like, <laughs> yeah, we didn't think we were going to anyway. But we've also been really fortunate to have great investors who have believed in us and have helped us like top off some of our funding. So I won't pretend like we've been able to bootstrap this whole thing. We've raised a bunch of money, but we've never counted on it. It's always a nice to have if we're able to do it. Yeah. So you're it's running a real business then, right? We are and we aren't. We are not. <laughs> we are not. We are not profitable. So I don't want to pretend that we're profitable yet, but we are reducing our burn every month and should be profitable before we run out of money. That's the goal. But right now we're not. And that's a big focus. And it's nice to have that be in our control. Like, I don't have to wonder what investors care about or are looking for. I just yeah. have to look at numbers every month and see that we're closing the gap to profitability, which feels I have to. So that's fascinating to me. I have to say, there was always a part of me that's thinking about that next round. It sounds like you're just like, I don't want to say it's like, you're like, fuck you investors. But at the same time, you, you have a different path in mind. My thing has always been go big. That's the way things go. 
but you're driving towards an outcome which is like much more yours than at the mercy of some of the investors that are going to come along next or something. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, we do want to go big. We think this is a massive market that needs a lot of disruption and there can be a really big outcome here. But we also know that it takes a while, especially childcare is so entrenched and so fragmented and we're not going to change it overnight. So we've also never wanted to do something that we knew was like not actually sustainable without pouring in lots of marketing dollars or something that we couldn't actually continue if we didn't get the next round of funding. So we spend most of our money right now on on headcount, on engineers who are building the platform, which is we're burning cash doing that, but we feel like that's a good investment because we're investing in the platform rather than blowing it on marketing that yeah. doesn't, we can't actually have something to show for that. Do you know, Andy started Nanit, I think, as COO here. He's a regular on the show. Apparently, I'm those now. And so he's a regular on the show. And <laughs> regular. I'm one of the co-hosts. Thank you very much. <laughs> yes. It, it's, I was wondering, like, I don't know that, first of all, transparently, I don't have kids. I'm aware of the giganticness of these spaces. It feels to me like these are essentials that occur at a certain point in your life. I'm wondering if people ever say to you something like, oh, but eventually these people naturally churn out as the age of the customer, as the age of the child changes. It's something I haven't really thought about very much. Yeah. Nanit is a one-time transaction, or maybe it's not, and there's SaaS. I have no idea, Andy, sorry. And it's a SaaS model. <laughs> but it's a similar uh, thing uh, with uh, the churn uh, cycle, you would think, right? So for us, we get this question a ton. Anytime we pitch, we're like, you're focused on daycare and preschool. That's for kids ages zero to five. How are you retaining your parents long term? And our answer is we're not really focused on that right now. Our customer is actually the child care provider. It's a daycare or preschool. And if we're successful in helping them always get new families and grow their business, they will need us forever. We have providers that are really big, Kindercare and Bright Horizons, the biggest childcare companies in the country, and then tiny little in-home daycares that we support. And hopefully that the childcare businesses using us never churn. The parents right now will eventually not need Winnie. And if we're doing our jobs, frankly, you find childcare yeah. through Winnie, you shouldn't need it for another year or so till your, your kid ages into the next program, potentially. But we're okay with that. We have this engine for always getting new families to find Winnie. It's mostly SEO, spoiler alert. But, and eventually we will have more offerings that can help parents of older kids. Like we're getting into school age programs and we have camps and stuff like that. But it's not a massive focus so much as like solving the childcare need for kids ages. I'm also like you guys, there's three people in this panel here today that all share an investor. I was going to say Hunter S. Thompson. What's his fucking name again? Hunter <laughs> Hunter Walk. <laughs> Whatever. S. Thompson. Uh, and I knew that. I did. I and so I and I was wondering if like did, it's homebrew as the investor. I and I, guess, I talked to them on the phone. That's the embarrassing part. I've talked to them and everything. The, it's funny. I wonder whether going across investors like this. We did a slow ventures dinner one time. It was all slow venture investors and me. We were back Zach, to, uh, from slow as well. That ship, yeah. Yeah. So I didn't you, realize it was that. A, you would have been at, this is a New York one and it was at the Soho house at the time. So it's like Zach Sims. It was like a bunch of people. And we ended up talking about, I wonder if there's homebrew people all share like one thing 
that they end up talking about amongst investors or something like that. We won't. So we won't, definitely we won't. A funny aside, because so it's Joe, myself, and Sarah who all share homebrew as investors. Not my current company, and I know Joe not in your com- current company either. No, they are. They're in my current company. They're in your com- current company. Yeah. But it was funny. So we made this podcast to not have any investors, but I'm like, hey, let's just get Hunter on here. So I emailed him and I know you guys know the story. He turned us down. Can't remember what BS line he used or something. He's like, no, it's just not right for me right now. I'm like, it'd be fun to just like where we have we've both like you've been on a board. Like He was on our board and just like the kind of, I don't know, shit talking that you should have done this better or something like that. I thought it would have been entertaining, but he turned us down. So. Whatever. Founders only. There's a purity to having only founders on here, especially if you're repeat, because then it's like you have some scar tissue to talk about from the previous thing. I don't know if you find it difficult to talk about your current thing. I sometimes do. I don't know if that resonates with you at all. I, it resonates with me. I love talking about my current thing. The past is in the past. You are super open about it, I will say. And Andy, way your company, like like Nana, previous thing, is alive. Yeah, I'm the atypical one, so I'm only going to go so far in what I'm willing to share because the company is alive and going. And no, we have an amazing CEO there, Sarah, and I don't want to step on her toes by any means, shape, or form. Sarah, also a commonality with Nana. Here, Sarah, our guest, Sarah, people ask you when you churn, why do you think, I've heard that, question a lot back in the day. And I think the it's super interesting. It's like, did anyone ask the dating companies when people churn? Did anyone ask self-storage companies when people churn when they move? Great point. I don't understand why this market, and it's a very good market. It's a life stage market and it's greenfield. So you repeat. You basically have, and Sarah, you know the math as well as I do. In the US, you have 4 million births per year. Out of that, there's some addressable market and there's some non-addressable market. But it's a large population being born every year, like Quackwork, that are new customers for you. And your life, your LTV's got to be pretty long. It's a few years. So I always wonder, why do you think invest? Yeah. Why do investors ask these type of family type category companies these questions? I, I have a theory. It's not really a theory, but it's also proven, especially when women pitch, yeah. investors tend to ask them to prove themselves, prove the traction they've achieved, prove the numbers, prove that the market is going to be big enough versus like when men pitch, they dream with them. Like, how big could this get? And my f- favorite example is like the sneaker resale market is like a teeny tiny market. There were two companies in the market. The amount of evaluations of those two companies combined is like double the size of the existing market. So as an investor in those companies, you must be dreaming that these companies can make the market bigger. They can get more people interested in buying and reselling sneakers. But with childcare, which, by the way, only 50 percent of families in the U.S. access any form of childcare for their kids ages zero to five it is not even tapped out in the U.S. And you could imagine parents could spend a lot more if it was easier to come by and afford. Investors were still asking defensive qu- questions that put you on the defensive rather than dreaming about how big this thing could be. And I feel like these this is a problem for women founded companies. It's a problem for industries that the investors that you're pitching are just not that interested in dreaming about. They're not dreaming about how to be a better parent unfortunately. And that's mm-hmm. why as at Winnie, we've had the most success pitching women-founded venture firms, sure. not just 
women at a venture firm, but like the actual firm is led by women. We've had the most success with those kinds of funds. And is there literally like, no, Kevin, you go ahead. You go ahead. Yeah. Sarah, I'm curious. You mentioned how you said that like with male founders and with VCs that they are able to dream with them versus you. Do you think that is because you're women founded or just the actual market that they cannot identify with? And if it is because you're women founded, how does that come across like in the actual pitch? And how do you pick up on that? Yeah, I think it's both. I don't know what it's like to raise money as a man because I've never done it. But I do know what it's like to raise money as not just a woman, but a mother, a pregnant woman. Every major round I raised, I was like visibly pregnant. And this was pre-COVID when you couldn't hide behind a Zoom. Um, I have to imagine, based on (laughs) the questions investors ask me, the uh, known bias there is against people in these situations that it was even if they didn't intentionally bias against me like it was a not a positive not something that made them look at me like the next sbf with crazy hair (laughs) that raised millions of dollars just based on the questions i got i remember one investor told me that didn't end up investing you don't seem like you can build a brand the way these other women founders have built a brand and I was like, that's, it's not a brand about me. I'm not trying to be the brand. I'm trying to build a company in a marketplace. Like who cares what I look like and how great I am on camera? Like it was just such insane comparison because we're not trying to build like some consumer packaged good. We're building a marketplace. What are the worst worst questions that you, sorry, what are the worst questions you've been asked? What have you been fundraising? And feel free to tell us from who. Yeah. That's please name names. <laughs> one of one of the investors I pitched asked me like what I do for childcare and who takes care of my kids. And mm. in some way it's very related to the market, mm. but I took that as they were trying to make sure that I could really like work on this company in a way that just I imagine if I were a man, they wouldn't have wondered that. I, Joe, I'm curious as to your experience. Relay a story very quickly that happened to me at the Series A at Breather. It's not really, of course, it's not the same, but it is vaguely adjacent. I did a pitch. I was, I feel weird talking about the names. I have to tell you, I do feel weird about it. It was RRE. People knew that they lit my Series A, so it's obvious you could look it up. And and Steve Schlafman brought me in, who I think probably everyone on this panel probably knows to a degree or another mm-hmm. in one way or on Twitter in real life. And it's, I think, the first deal that he ever leads to a partner meeting, maybe. So he's also feeling weird about it. I come in. It's not obvious from this way that I look here on this in this camera right now. I have a lot of tattoos. I'm covered in tattoos everywhere. Oh, let's see him. Let's check it out. I, it, it, it's I, it's going to be a lot of work. But <laughs> take it off things. your shirt. It goes here. It goes here. It goes in a lot of places. Lanka, what they're missing. <laughs> <laughs> First name, Sarah. No, too far. Okay, too far. And so the I leave the partner meeting, and someone in the panel I know who's in the partner meeting at that time, who's partnered RE, but I don't know who said this. Someone says that guy's going to have trouble raising money, and they're like, "Why?" And they're like, "He's covered in tattoos. He doesn't fit the mold." And again, I'm not comparing the two experiences; are not parallel. That's happened to me several times in my life, and it's always made me feel like. Oh yeah, fuck you guys. Not fuck, but 
fuck in general, that group of people, I was wondering if you feel like it drives you more. And Joe, I'm curious as to your perspective on this. I'd love to hear Sarah, actually. Have you Sarah first? Oh, yes. Yes. I'm the most competitive person you'll ever meet. Like, I I don't know if you've heard of this, like, Strengths Finder book, but I've I've taken that quiz, like, 500 times. Every year I take it again. It's like, I only have one strength, and it's competition. It's the only nice. thing that drives me. So, yeah, like, whenever someone says you can't do, like, I still think back to that investor who told me I wasn't going to build a brand. And every time I get press, I'm like, oh, look at this. Do you share it with them? Please tell me you email them. (laughs) No, I just tweet about it. (laughs) And they actually turned out to be really nice and helpful later. Not to be an asshole too much, but it definitely drives me to know that they thought that. And I definitely feel like I have something to prove. That's That's fair. So I'm curious. I remember, so our son is seven years old. And when he was, I... Winnie was just coming out about the time yes. he was born. So I feel like I've been tracking. Because I have a like, seven-year-old and that is what inspired it. Bond, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I'm curious over that length of time, how much the core idea has evolved from what you started thinking you were building versus like it actually becoming like a full marketplace and all the momentum yeah. you have. Like how windy has that road been? Yeah. So we built something totally different in the beginning that had no product market fit and had no business model. It was like a Yelp for parents where you could find places to go with your kids. And it was fun to build, but no one cared about it and didn't make any money. And it was from that, though, that we stumbled into childcare. It was like an afterthought of our initial app. It was all about all kinds of places to go and building this Yelp-like directory. And then we saw that like the only thing that people were actually getting any value from was when they were looking for childcare. And we also stumbled upon the fact that there wasn't a website or a directory for all licensed daycare and preschool. Even directories like Yelp or Google My Business, they don't have a lot of the home-based daycares. And these daycares are all licensed and regulated by the state. They just don't exist online. So we discovered that there was this big gap between the childcare that was on the internet and the childcare that actually exists. Um, And so it it was like a white space and an opportunity. And still... There is still no other real directory for every licensed daycare and preschool, and unbelievably. And we started really just by building out that directory. We weren't even thinking about like a marketplace yeah. per se. We were just like very much, let's get every listing on there. And then it evolved into a marketplace when we started getting the providers on on kind of the other end instead of just building web pages for them. Yeah. Was it an obvious direction to take or was there a lot of internal kind of just tossing and turning on oh should we abandon what we thought was the original business and and go towards this thing or how did it how did you make that decision yeah I mean it was actually we were just doing a recap of 2022 and we finally uh in the beginning of 2022 purged from our database all the other crap we had there that wasn't daycares and preschools none of that had been live on the site but that's how long it's taken us to like fully pivot because it was scary. So it was such a gradual pivot. That's my deepest regret. Everyone's like, if you could do it differently, it it wouldn't have taken us seven years to get where we were if we didn't spend the first two years holding on Mm -hmm. to something that didn't work. It was literally two years wasted 
on a thing that we knew we could have known it six months in that we should have made like that hard pivot, but we were so attached to it and we were scared to like call it a pivot that it just took us way longer than it should have. This really resonates with me, this language. It's you waste so much time worrying about what your team will. I don't know if this is something that feels like you connect with, but it's like you spend so much time worrying, what is my team going to think? We're pivoting. Maybe they're going to think they won't believe in me anymore. And, oh, we can't call it a pivot because our old customers believed in in this. Will will they follow us? All these different variations. And and then every single time you ask everybody, they're just like, I fucking hate that I wasted all my time doing that. It was such a, so useless or whatever. I'll actually speak on that. That's essentially what I did. But instead of carrying on, with my last company, Ship, we did the pivot into my new company, Arrowhouse, which we were trying to pivot internally, but we just raised so much capital and there was so much history and our board of directors was so large. And it was just, I tried to continue the company, but essentially what we were trying to build inside of Ship turned out to be Arrowhouse. So I completely relate, but it was such a nice like split because we did not have access to the database. We did not have all these other things that it was nice to have that, that like refresh. But I don't think a lot of people realize like how many pivots and how long they take. And a lot of the stuff that, that, that seems really obvious is definitely takes a long time to get there. And it's a tough journey to bring your employees around to that, your investors, your existing customers, maybe you need to cut existing customers off all those things. Pivots are brutal. So did you have any investors that didn't want you to make that? They wanted you to kind of hedge and keep the other thing going or was everyone pushing you to like go all in? They were, some investors were like, yeah, there's, this seems like this thing has legs. But before we went all in, like they didn't know either. They were like, yeah, this could be good. This other thing could be good. Maybe you should do all the things. Like, I don't feel like investors are necessarily great at saying no to something. They're more like, oh, this looks good and this other thing looks good. Try them all. (laughs) But uh, it was really like when we focused and decided we're not doing any of those other things, we're making this bet that things really took off. Mm -hmm. And now in hindsight, it's so obvious, like the thing we do now has a business model and makes money and it grows. The other thing had no business model and (laughs) didn't have any growth plan and like all these problems. But it wasn't, it really wasn't obvious to anyone when we were in it. Uh, Did you have a board during this whole time? Yes. We, I believe in the very beginning, it was just homebrew that was our board. Got it. Okay. Back to Hunter S. Thompson. Excellent. Great. H dog, as we like to call him here internally. (laughs) And to homebrew's credit, they, I think we would be, we would have never made the pivot if they weren't supportive of, look, you guys got to figure it out. This is on you. And we're supportive and we can offer ideas and advice. And they were actually one of the investors that said, yeah, you should really look at this childcare thing that you're doing. It seems to be like maybe the more important thing to spend your time on. Um, so they definitely get a lot of credit for that pivot. But at the end of the day, like it, it's, it was on us to actually rip the Band-Aid off and change the direction of the company. And an important thing that often I, I think people don't appreciate when they haven't started a company before, right? Like if anyone is on the outside looking in, sometimes you get this board 
and you want so much for them to give you an answer, but they very much do not want to give you an answer and they actually will lose confidence in you if you start to depend on them too much. I don't know. I know we're talking about a specific person because we're talking about a small board here. Maybe me across the panel, I was yeah. wondering if that resonates with you and that sort of experience has ever happened. I think great I... board. I, I think great. Go, Kevin. Sorry, go, go for it, Andy. No, 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 no. Go first. I think great boards that are used to ex working with experience management teams expect you to come to the answer and expect you to come with a plan. And that's a very traditional management, larger company mentality. I think there's the other end of the spectrum where other investors it, want to basically tell you what to do. And there's something in between. I have learned as a CEO how to come with my plan and expect. And I think Frank Slootman, the CEO of Snowflake, talks a lot about this, how to manage a board. I think there are, though, a lot of VCs who don't understand that and approach it from, I'm going to tell you what to do. Sarah, I'm curious of your perspective on this, and then I'd love to hear Ke Kevin and Joe's. Yeah, for me, it's definitely been a work in progress of figuring out how the board can best help the company and then really being clear with them on what my expectations are of what I want from them. It also really helped us when we added our independent board director. I feel like that up-leveled the whole board. And we meet with him more regularly because he's just really helpful. But that kind of makes the conversation, it's made the conversations a lot more productive. And then we're very clear with the board on what we want their feedback on and what we don't. And we're just informing them and giving them the status update. What kind of independent board member did you get? So we got, we really needed help on the marketing growth side at the time we added our independent. And so we added this guy, Dinesh, who was the SVP of marketing at Udemy and just a really smart guy. It turns out a smart person can just weigh in a lot of areas. And so he's really just become like a trusted extension of the team. And we work with him to, on all sorts of things, including like sales strategy and things we weren't in, intending to work with him on in the beginning. But I think adding someone that is a bit more involved in the company brings a perspective that is not an investor perspective. Like he's really just yes. digging into the data. He's very data focused. So he's always looking at things from like first principles and not necessarily from what do I need to report back to my LPs or other biases that investors yeah. just naturally bring. The um, investor comes in with, I put in $5 million. The independent comes in with, I put it, I've done nothing. So time. maybe they- My time, yeah. I'm getting paid to be here. <laughs> yeah, and, and stock, hopefully it's worth something. I can completely relate to you, Sarah. My independent board member, Rita Lane, she worked underneath Tim Cook at Apple on outsourcing the uh, manufacturing overseas for the iPhone and some Mac products. So she knew the logistics world extremely well. That's why I wanted to bring her on. And I think that she was an amazing board member. And like looking back at her, like for us, we went through this massive hype cycle and like I, my ego is way too big. And like I did not even listen to her when I should have. But now looking back at what she said, we're basically building a version <laughs> with the house of you guys should do this thing. But just the lens of the independent board member that they don't have not 
they're not an investor. They don't have, they don't think like an investor. They're, they're operators. They can sympathize with you. They've been in, in probably similar situations that you've been in. And also at different, at different investors you get in your board, depending on the seed investor, series A investor, series B investor, they can all, they also can be depending on where you are, as far as how successful you are, they could be different levels of pissed off at you based on where you are or where you're not at. I think earlier board members, probably if you have raised like a series B or series C, probably are going to be the most like unbiased, but like the later stage ones are going to put the most pressure on you and to want to see, they don't really care. You want to see the numbers go up higher, faster, spend more, go faster. And it may not be the best thing for the company. So I think having that independent voice there is so underrated and for me i saw how powerful it could be and also if you get independent they could also wrangle the investors and that's that's an true even better thing what's your expense your experience on that i really struggled managing my board at cloud i had never been in a board meeting i didn't understand really what a board meeting was and then i had a lot of really big personalities on my board and i also deferred way too much we were talking about them like that the they don't want you to ask them to make decisions i was like i literally had a guy on my board bing gordon who was on amazon's board and zynga's board at the time and this was like peak zynga i know bing yeah and i'm a funny guy yeah he's a he's a amazing guy but it was just too much for me to handle at that stage in my career to manage him and get the best out of him in a board situation i probably blew two years of time just spinning in circles from kind of day trading on strategy with the board and and not doing what we're talking about here is having a real perspective and being directive to the board on what I want their feedback on and then synthesizing that and making my own decisions. It was painful, really. And I still even have like PTSD. The My wife can always tell when I have a board meeting next week because <laughs> like I just start getting like <laughs> stress and I and the last two companies I've had really great boards and not painful, but there was a pretty brutal process to get there. It, it's like there needs to be training wheels in the early days, right? The CEO doesn't know what they're supposed to do and how to do it. it, it Sarah, I see you nodding. I don't know if this resonates with you. Yeah. Like there, there was no manual for how to run a board meeting that was productive. And in the early days, it was a lot of just like reporting on almost like what you would share with a boss and then like seeking their approval and validation versus now we don't even go over the metrics. I send those out a week in advance and usually we have to talk about some question that there is, but mm -hmm. I try not to spend any time going over them so that I can spend the time on discussion topics. And then I'm very clear now with what I want out of the discussion. And it's almost never weighing in on product features that we're building because we okay. pretty much never want that feedback from our board. My co-founder and I are both product people. We're a team of product and engineering people. It's like not the thing we want their help on. We want their help on everything else from like fundraising strategy to sales strategy to sometimes press packaging, pricing, like those sort of things, what they're seeing in the market, that's a great thing for the board to give us feedback on since they have a much broader view. But we're very clear, like, we really don't want you to weigh in on whether this is a good or bad product feature or it's built the way that you would want to use it, especially not in a board meeting. That's not a good use of the time in the board meeting. 
How many people I, here have Googled the how to run a board meeting and found that Sequoia <laughs> article? Yes. I use it. That's the one I use. <laughs> it's the only thing on the internet that actually explains how to do this. So for all the content marketers out here, you really have, there is a keyword here that all the founders are looking for. Yep. Someone recently gave me feedback. Someone who's followed me through a couple of companies and was like, Julian, you're a good, I don't know if y'all feel you'll have a skill set as a CEO or a founder. There's certain things that I'm good at and that recently actually I was on another podcast and someone, I was like, we were going through D and D classes and it came out that I'm the bard, which I, I have to say, I, I do not. That's a bad class to be. That's not really a skill set, unfortunately, except being able to talk and explain vision things with people and so on. And someone recently gave me the feedback, your board, your actually your investor updates are not serious and, and you should try to deliberately level up past the stage that you are currently at. So if you're a series C or series A company, try to deliver a series B or series C level board deck or investor update. And I took that to heart because it's, you got to be, you got to grow into the CEO that, that the board kind of wants you to be in a way. I'm excited to see what's coming next month. No, no, I don't. I stopped sending to you months ago. No. <laughs> <laughs> Do we want to move on to some of the, in the news topics? Yeah, go for it. So one of the things we had, I thought it was really interesting. There's a lot of different angles we could take this, but uh, Salesforce, which has been on such a, like a huge tear for the last, I don't know, 15 years or so. They've acquired a lot of amazing companies. So they, they acquired Slack, Tableau, remind me of Brett Taylor's company, his name again. Yeah. And also their founders have been there for quite, quite a while. And just over those last week, all three of those founders have left Salesforce and also Brett Taylor, who was the co-CEO, which the CEO of Salesforce, Mark Finioff, he's done co-CEOs before, which have not worked out. I think he's had two previous co-CEOs before. But I thought it was really interesting to see like three very high profile founders that Salesforce acquired for a lot of money all left in the same week. So we think there's a number third, of different directions. Kevin? What's that? Who's the third? I don't know who the third co-CEO was. No, Never the mind. third like company. Yeah. Anyway, so it's a lot of high. Tableau. Tableau. Oh, the Tableau. I missed the Tableau founder. Okay. So it's yeah. Slack, Tableau, and, and Fred Taylor. Yep. Yes. Cool. Andy, you now feel I'm like on you the have same a hot page. Don't. I'm just trying to, pro I just actually probably am slow today. We're going to see a lot. I think this is just the beginning. Like 2023 is going to be a tough year for every company, whether you're a massive, super successful company like Salesforce or a startup. And I think a lot of people who are really excited about like the hyper growth phase of companies and if you're at Salesforce acquiring lots of companies and making these massive investments and changing the city of San Francisco. There's so much Salesforce is actually one of our investors. So there's so much that they do. They have like such far reaching impact. But now it's like really different kind of time. And a lot of that excitement is temporarily on hold while all these companies focus on profitability and yeah. cutting costs and making sure they have really strong business fundamentals. So I think that is just a different job. And we're going to see lots of CEO changes. We're going to see lots of people 
leaving companies, especially when people can afford to do like when they don't have to worry about finding right. their next gig, which certainly right. Brett Taylor is cool to, to hang out for a while. Stuart Butterfield, they can just chill. Think? I, don't, I just think it's someone like Stuart who founded Slack. That's what he does. He <laughs> dreams big and creates yeah. these really exciting products. Like this is a kind of a different time. Stuart Butterfield is exceptional because every single time that he builds something incredible, it starts as, I don't really want to be respectful to Stuart for some reason. I know he'll never listen to this. But it's like, he's always starting to no, open. He's coming on. He's coming on the pod. He's coming on. It's such a stupid game all the time. Every single one of them. Flickr started as a stupid game. <laughs> Slack started as a stupid game. What's the next stupid game? It, it, he's it starting a game and it's finally going to work. That's the next, this that's what a, he's planning. Yeah. It's Sarah, do you feel like there's some same thing like Stuart, not a stupid game, but something that's always pulling you in a certain direction? Like you have a vision and or vision that follows you along your, the arc of your life or something like that? I feel like I am the, probably the opposite, like founder profile of Stuart Butterfield, where I never intended to be a founder. This was not, I was not the person who was dreaming up big ideas from early as a kid. I was motivated by the problem space and I saw an opportunity awesome. to build something for parents. I also was really motivated by my co-founder who was like this just super talented person. She still is a super talented person <laughs> and like just the opportunity to work with her and build a company of really talented people who I had worked with in past lives was exciting to me. And I continue to work on Winnie seven years later because I feel like we have, we still have this massive opportunity to change child's childcare really fundamentally. But it's not like this will be, I will not be a second time founder. You will not find me on this really? podcast as a co host. I will do Winnie until really? we change childcare in the United States and the world. And then I will chill. All right, so you find Sarah. Somebody find Sarah when she sells her next company is working for someone else. And let's hear the real answer because I don't actually yeah. believe after running your own company, you can work for somebody else. Yeah. That's but let's see. Yeah. Prove me wrong. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. really tough. I actually had, had a question for the entire group here on the co-CEO piece. It hasn't, it did not work out for Brett and Mark, obviously at Salesforce. Have you guys had any experience with either being a co-CEO or a CEO. I know, Andy, you've been a CEO at Nanit. How has that relationship been? Has there been tension? Is it good to give a lot of the power to one people? Have there been power struggles? Does anybody have any anecdotes around that? Joe, I think you you had, you, you had a pretty, was it a C, your COO of Clout was pretty high profile after Clout as well, right? Yeah, so... We, Emil Michael joined as COO of Cloud. Whoa. You didn't know <laughs> and, that, Julian? No. <laughs> uh, yeah. And famously went on to, to Uber and other things. I had an amazing experience working with Emil. He was a really great compliment to me. I felt like I learned more from him. It wasn't a drama thing. And it was a, I had a skill gap that he more than filled. It is interesting seeing the co-CEO thing. I feel like when I've seen it successful, which isn't often, it usually it's the company was always like that. It started like that. And 
you know, have you ever, ever seen it work out though? You, you always see them that somebody takes over. I don't, I, I, yeah. I can't think of any company that still has that structure. I think Harry's has it still. Yeah. Okay. I feel like fucking what's the eyeglass company? Sorry, I'm misnaming things. Warby and Harry, but Warby? they're derivatives of each other. It's the right. Their founders went on from Harry's to start Warby or one of the or with the other way around. Sarah, how did you decide between you and your co-founder who would be CEO or was it obvious right away? It's really funny. Like, I remember like day two of deciding to start a company. It was really important to me that I was the CEO. And I was I thought it was going to be this really dramatic discussion. And I went to Anne. I was like, we have to we're going to have to set aside time to figure out who the CEO is. <laughs> and she was like, oh, I don't want to be the CEO. And I was like, like great. What? <laughs> I was like, I must be the CEO. And she's like, okay, perfect. Sounds good. It was the easiest conversation ever. And why probably- do you think that was? What, 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 why, why did you need to be the CEO? I'm curious. Um, like, I, I don't know. I'm a firstborn. Like, why do I need to do half of the things I do? And it's like my drive to always be the best. It was like a symbol right. of being the best. Now, the in retrospect, I'm like, well. oh, God, could anyone else please be the CEO? I would die to not do this job. <laughs> but at the time, I thought it was like a, a really cool title to have. I was so wrong. But it also is a good. It's, it was clear we were like destined to work together because a lot of things I That's great. That's care great. about, she could care less about and vice versa. So yeah. we've been good compliments to each other and see some of the blind spots that the other might be missing. It's also amazing, Sarah, that you've been working together for seven years and you continue to work together. I know this is a weird thing to say. I've had two co-founders and two companies. And in both cases, I was, I'm also the firstborn. I'm curious if in the panel, if everyone is, but it's like, it's not easy to be friends and to really get along with your co-founder for seven years. That's not an obvious thing at all. Yeah, it's like a marriage and a lot of marriages don't last. A lot of founder relationships don't last. But I I got really lucky with both my marriage and my co-founder. I didn't know either of these people very well before we started. In Before I got married, I didn't know my husband very well. And before I decided to start a company with Anne. And I think in both cases, I found people that were really complimentary to that's so important. Like a, an identical person to me would not have worked. No. We would have flashed too much. But I found these two people that were just really complimentary where it somehow has worked to all of these years in both cases. Funny. I'm a firstborn and also can't imagine not being CEO. Uh, same. Same. <laughs> That's weird. Wait, Sarah, is everyone you... wear firstborn? Andy, yeah. Are you breaking? Are you firstborn? I'm a firstborn. Wow. Wow. (laughs) All firstborns. Okay. Is this like a thing? I never thought about that. I've never heard about this. It makes sense to me. It does. I am like such a believer. Now that I have three kids and I (laughs) see their personalities, like the birth order is, it it has to have such an effect. Totally. So Sarah, what are the titles for the other two children? The first child, I know you love them all equally. You, all three children. The first one is naturally the CEO. And then oh, yeah. what are the titles for the other two? You, know. you don't even remember. You don't even know or think about the other two. Part of the problem. But <laughs> that develops them into probably better people down the road because right. they That's true. do not have life. They're way more balanced. <laughs> They're way um, more But yeah, the middle child just completely disappears. And then the third child is at least like getting a lot of coddling from 
the older siblings. But yeah, they're like, they're getting a lot more training early on. The things I had to discover as an adult, they're learning now. Life doesn't revolve around you. Right. So I'm curious, what do you and your co-founder Anne do to keep that relationship so strong and kind of clearing the air and not letting just the buildup of working together for that long perk the company? For us, it's been a lot of just having really clear roles and responsibilities. She's our head of product. So really anything product or having to do with like engineering decisions, even though we have a VP of engineering, but if it involves, do we work on this or do this kind of rewrite or do we invest in this? Like, I just defer to her. I may disagree and voice my opinion, but I don't get to make the call at the end of the day. And all the other stuff is me. And she's happy to not have to make those decisions. Do we go out and raise money? Do we take this valuation? Do we have a sales team or try to build the revenue self-serve? She gives a ton of input and we talk about all these things together, but it helps at the end of the day to know who's making the ultimate call. And that's why I think co-CEOs, it would just be so hard unless you have a very clear division because there's lots of stuff that comes up that if it's not in her wheelhouse, it just defaults to me because I'm the CEO. And there's always stuff like that that someone, it's a hard call and someone just has to make it and might be wrong, but it's just better to make the call and move on. And if you didn't have one final kind of person in charge, I think it'd be hard to make those decisions. I see it every day in our house. The co-CEOs with our kids trying to play us, (laughs) trying to find the decision point they want, get the answer they want. Daddy said I can have candy. (laughs) We are the board. Uh, Sarah, is there a division between inside and outside and in between your co-founders? I often between CEO and CEO, it's like the outside person and the inside person. That's where they point their attention. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's very much because so much of what we do as a company is product and engineering. And that's what my co-founder is in charge of. So it ends up being the resourcing of the company and what we prioritize building and all that stuff is all her. And then I'm doing everything else, which is not always the most fun job, but someone's got to do it. I heard once that it's actually the easiest job to be the founder, non-CEO of a startup because the CEO is just, has so many things that they have to manage. It's just, if you're the other person, it's like, yeah, whatever. (laughs) Definitely not. Yeah, whatever. But (laughs) I would think it's a little. You're not the CEO. You're not accountable to the board in the same way. Not in the same way. It still is extreme. Everything like falls on the founders, especially for the first few years before you get really large, hopefully. Yeah. It's probably more frustrating because you're just as invested from a life perspective, even if it's just a slight bit less of control, knowing you can't make the ultimate decisions. That's true. That's where trust, you have to have the trust. You have to. And then it's got to be hard. I mean, we had a little bit of this in cloud, very small, but I became the face of the company. So when, when that's in magazines and you're like everywhere, not spreading that shine out across everyone and, and not having that feel like a weird thing could create a lot of tension. But also from the company's perspective, you do want to have a face of the company. Like it's in the best interest, even if you as the CEO, you're like, I want to actually spread this across a number of different people and give everybody like, 
equal recognition publicly, it is in the company's best interest to have that one single person that is the head of the company that can talk on, on behalf of the company and all of those things. So I think it yeah. does take a very special person, probably not a firstborn potentially sounds like to be a co-founder, non-CEO, but you, it is a, it's a really great skill set. Obviously, none of us here possess it, as we all said that we couldn't be not CEOs, but it's extremely valuable. And I think also in the early years, being a co-founder is such, say the first four or five years is like as hard as it is to be like the actual CEO in a, in a lot of different ways. And then it definitely rolls to change. Maybe not. I don't know. Maybe you have a different opinion, Jillian. I hear you breathing in the background. I'm just there. like, I'm just like thinking about it. And I, on the glass door, on the glass door. Yeah, uh, you, you, it doesn't say approve of COO, approve of co-founder percentage. Mm -hmm. It says percentage approved, approve of CEO. That's what it says. Mm-hmm. And, but I can't say I have, I've only been the CEO. And so I don't know if I can really truly appreciate it, but I'm going to say founder CEO is uniquely difficult. That's just my perspective. Should we end it on that? Or you guys still have some more time? Sarah, final hot take. I have too many hot takes. <laughs> I think that that's a good way to end it. Yeah. We can end it on, the, on that note. All right. Don't close the browser. It's got to upload. Nope. Got okay. It. Can't close the browser. We also, do this right to have you on. Thank you yeah. so much, Sarah, for being our first guest. It was a wonderful. This is episode number eight. Hopefully, there's many hundreds of more this. to come. This is going to overtake the all in pod. I can't wait. <laughs> yes. Right. Now I'm going to use that quote when we promote this. I love it. Uh, this is Ed. <laughs> this thank is you. Ed. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for the time. Thanks it was for great listening, to chat everybody. with you, Sarah. Thanks so much for taking the time to be on with us today. See you thank next time. Thank you, Sarah. Bye. Hey, yeah, we keep it real and we bring you the facts. It's the second time founders podcast. Talking tech news, the show is a must. Not some billionaire trying to sell you their book. We're coming from a real place, plenty ups and downs. Got some insights. Join the discussion now. We being honest and raw, giving you real talk. We've been at the bottom and made it happen and much more. The second time founders podcast. More building, less talk.